Welcome to a good goodbye with certified thanatologist Gail Rubin. She says talking about sex won't make you pregnant. Talking about funerals won't make you dead. Brought to you by Funeral Radio. And now your host, Gail Rubin. Welcome to a special edition of A Good Goodbye, Funeral Planning for Those Who Don't Plan to Die. I'm your host, Gail Rubin. Very pleased to have with me on the line Stephen Jenkinson, who is the author of a book called Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. And he was also the subject of a documentary called Grief Walker. Uh, Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you. You have a background in uh, the the death business, I guess we could say. The death trade, I call it. The death trade, yes. Please tell our listeners a little bit about where you come from and what you've been doing. Where I come from? Well, w- yes, where you come from in the in how you got involved with the death trade. Uh-huh. And, and what you've well, done. I, I didn't know there was such a thing as a death trade at first, so I certainly didn't choose it or seek it out. And then um, I was prevailed upon by a well-intended person who was convinced that that I would do well there or the place would do well if I was there or some combination of the two. I knew myself to be not organizational material in the least, and as a consequence, I was I was pretty loath to join the, what amounted to uh, a hospital staff and all of the rest. And um, kind of we shook hands on a very temporary deal whereby I would, I would uh, take a group of men who were frankly terrifying the hospital staff because they had someone die on them recently or who was in the process of dying. And, and these guys were you know, belligerent, hostile uh, on one side. And as the nurses described them, much worse on the other side, which was absolutely silent and said nothing at all. And, um, you know, I took those guys on for six weeks to see if I could be of any use to them at all, really not knowing what would we be doing. And they didn't know either. And and it became very apparent very quickly that they were overly skilled, let's call it, uh, at the at the level of anger. And the anger was a completely legitimate, I should say, response to what was going on. But it was a kind of cover story for the fact that they were deeply unpracticed when it came to sadness. And they eventually called what we were doing sad school. And it was supposed to last something in the order of six weeks. And it lasted 18 months at their insistence with new people coming in and the rest. And by the end of that, I was, um, I suppose I was persuaded against my better judgment that maybe, maybe I could be some of use in this enterprise. And within a year after that, I was um, in charge of all the counseling services for the largest home-based palliative care program in Canada at that time, mm-hmm. and then subsequently was asked to um, mastermind a, uh, a program for children's grief and palliative care from scratch, which I, I did, and, and that was my um, baptism of fire in, uh, in more the organizational mayhem that surrounds the care of dying people, and, and secondarily, and probably more deeply, and more troublingly, the kind of cultural, beyond the confines of the hospital now, the, the sort of cultural malaise that keeps our dying from us and that keeps other people's dying from us as well in the name of us having a nice day. That's how it began. 
Yes. And and you bring to this work, you have a master's degree in theology from Harvard University and a master's degree in social work from the University of Toronto. So you and and from what I understand, I think you've had your own brushes with death when you were younger. Well, that's true. I should tell you that those degrees were were uh, useful and uh, exercises, but uh, virtually well, let's say nominal uh, applicability in the work that I ended up doing. God bless everybody who was there and gave me that education. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as the personal stuff goes, which is not to be overplayed by any means, because you know brushes with death qualify you for exactly nothing inherently. But yeah, I was very young and I was dying with spinal meningitis, and uh, I remember it fairly clearly because I was only three, three and a half. But, but I do remember not my own reactions or feelings at all. But I certainly remember the the way that the people, the adults around me, in particular the nurses in the hospital were. And I suppose, you know, it, it lapsed for a long time, but it's an enduring memory. And um, it's one that I, I, I treasure in a strange way. It was, it was a troubled time for those around me. But for me, it was, I suppose, more mysterious and uncharted than anything else. And because, you know, at three and a half, you're not troubled by your death. You're not even sure what that is, but you can see that the people around you are and you could say that their own sorrows and and angers there they become communicable to you and they become part of the the fabric of your days and if you're lucky you don't forget them and of course I ended up making a living in some measure remembering those things ongoingly mm-hmm. while I was I was with other people now you write and speak about the prevailing death avoidant culture in North America, and of course, I see that in in the outreach that I do as well. So why do you think we here in North America have developed this death avoidant attitude? Well, I'm not sure that I would call it something we developed. It seems, of course, from generation to generation, to be something that's inherited. Um, I mean, nobody, I could put it this way, 90 plus percent of the hundreds of people who died on my watch, they died badly by any sane measure of the term. And if you'd like me to, I can talk about it in a minute. Mm-hmm. They died badly. And yet nobody chose to die badly. And if you, if you make a referendum or a plebiscite in any jurisdiction, you ask people uh, how in favor they are of dying badly or being death avoidant, the rest, nobody would vote for it. So there in and of itself is a great mystery that on the surface, it would appear to have no takers whatsoever. But in fact, in in the dominant culture of North America, it has nothing but takers. I mean, people line up, frankly, uh, to make sure that uh, they don't die while while they are, is my way of of trying to say it. So I think the most compelling thing, it has nothing to do with medicine. It doesn't even have anything to do with... um, you know the contemporary comfort-seeking addictions that prevail. I think, I think the deep and compelling reason for all of this, frankly, is the how your country and mine, both of them were were crafted from, from very odious beginnings. I mean, anybody who wants to know that can know that quite well. But um, all of them were were crafted by uh, spontaneous immigration uh, from Europe, typically, but not only. And the consequence of that has been since those days that the the dominant culture of North America is living its daily life in the absence of A, a shared understanding of what happens to you when you die, B, 
uh, any shared understanding of what dying asks of you. And maybe most emphatically, we're living our, all our lives, more or less, in the absence of any ongoing lived relationship with those who lived and died before us, known as our ancestors. Minus all of those things, you probably get the kind of dominant culture that you and I are referring to now. Mm. There are so many things that you wrote about. I was interested that you said that this isn't really anything to do with medicine, but as we have advances in medical care, the prevailing attitude about pursuing treatment, even in the face of a terminal illness, is if you can, you should. But you don't agree with that that mantra. And, and you also write about the idea that maybe hope isn't so much a good idea when you're dealing with a terminal illness. Yeah, you're putting it very subtly. I, I was much more clear <laughs> about, the, about how disastrous hope is uh, when you're dying. Well, on the first question, you know, I'm not, you know, the book is 400 pages long. There's a lot of things in there. There's, you know, I come back and back to this question of the medical technology regime. And, um, you know, it's there. And look, it does a lot of good. I'm not assassinating anybody in a white coat with a stethoscope here. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> no, not, not at all. It's, there, there's, there, you know, pain, pain management and symptom management, they're, they're vital to any sense of well-being that, pe- that dying people have access to. But having said that, if that's what you lead with, as a, as a kind of medical culture, you back yourself into the understanding that dying is fundamentally a metabolic, physical event that's um, attended to by unfortunate, by unavoidable uh, attitudes, opinions, and other aspects constituting a self. That's what ends up happening. It's the old adage, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So if your hammer is medical technology, of course you're gonna lead with that, and it's going to determine what you think you're there to do. And so what I'm saying is, when I worked in the death trade all those years, what I found is that medical practitioners had a predisposition to understanding dying as something they should do something about, not something that they should serve and be educated by, to the point where you could say all of their medical training was in spite of dying. It didn't derive from the realities of dying. It derived from understanding that they were there to thwart as much as possible the realities of dying. So that's the dilemma, you see. Mm-hmm. And as far as the hope aspect goes, not dissimilar, really. Um, if you ask yourself, um, really, what's the consequence of being hopeful when you're dying? Most people, when talking about it at all, they talk about the content, you see, the, the hoped-for thing. That's what they're willing to change, you know, from cure to quality of life, etc. What I'm saying is, I think there's consequence to being hopeful no matter what it is you're hoping for. And the fundamental consequence of hopefulness is that it turns you away from an ability and an obligation to inhabit the present moment with all of its sadnesses, torments, all its possibilities, all the more time that has been granted to you, and turns you instead towards a vaguely promised future that apparently chemo or radiation or thinking positive thoughts or eating enough broccoli or only having good people around you is supposed to deliver. And it's very hard on the present moment when as a dying person, you're looking to the future wherein your death is frankly guaranteed. The present on the other hand is entirely up for grabs. 
as to how you will live it, being hopeful generally obliges you to turn away from what dying is asking of you. And that's the difficulty I have with it. Mm-hmm. And and you did talk about more time, and I noticed in the book it's capitalized with a capital M and a capital T. That's right. That getting more time that, that people pray for is not necessarily a benefit. It's actually more, rather than more life, they get more death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this would be a, a good news story, more time if the more time was granted by and lived in a culture that actually believed in and endorsed and educated us about the realities of dying and how we might do that. Because frankly, more time in any social context is, yes, it's more time with the children or the grandchildren or the dog. It's more time looking out the window. And it's also more dying, more symptoms, more pain, and more uncertainty about how one is to live one's days. In that context, then, if your culture does not credit dying as a legitimate outcome of your life, you're enduring more time, much more than you are enjoying it. And, yeah, sadly, so so many people just endure, but, but are putting up this face of, well, yes, I've got more time. Um, you talk about moving our our consideration of death from a confrontation a battle you know battling the cancer to imagery of wrestling yes could you explain that a little sure it's a little arbitrary i've kind of chosen two different meanings to try to distinguish the idea it would be something like this um if we're fighting then it is, I think, in the architecture of battle or conflict that you're trying to get to the end more or less as quickly as possible, hopefully on the victorious side. You see? Mm-hmm. That's, that's in the nature of fighting. It's in the nature of the language of fighting and so on, is to prevail and be victorious. Wrestling, on the other hand, much more seems to me to re- resemble something like choreography, something like dance, that there's a kind of sometimes one leads, then another leads. And you could say the point of wrestling, or if you don't like the imagery, you could say the point of dance is not to get to the end of the dance, surely. Not to get it over with. The point of learning how to dance well is just that, is to be able to dance well, and hopefully for at least the duration of the song. So, so that's the, the vision I'm offering as what dying could possibly be understood as. Not something you endure and resist, but something that you learn that your life is in part crafted by and that you grant it its proper due in the course of your days. That's a learning thing. In the death phobic culture of North America, frankly, that is, from what I've seen, never learned. And if I say that kind of stuff out loud, people look at me like I have a kind of monstrous undertow to everything I'm about. Right. How can you, how can you possibly suggest that people give up the fight? probably yeah, well, sort of attitude. See, that language of give up is not mine either. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not saying give up the fight. I'm saying something in, closer to consider the real possibility that you're already seeing what fighting is going to get you. There's no mystery about it. You can see what it's going to get you. It's going to get you an epitaph or a eulogy that says, after a long and courageous battle, and what's the rest of it? If we finish the sentence, 
It's he lost. That's mm -hmm. what fighting means, winning or losing. But dying well is, is a matter not of winning or losing. It's a matter of dying as a living person and living as a dying person, that you're under no obligation to choose between those two identities. You know, I was with a, mm -hmm. I, I was with a woman one time and she was, uh, had been hospitalized uh, for, uh, turned out for the last time for the cancer that had recurred and a social worker walked into a room and said to her, now, so we understand each other, you are not dying of cancer, you are living with cancer. And I tell you, in a cheerleading culture, that mantra sounds like sanity and compassion. I'm saying to you, that's malpractice of the highest order. The reason being, who says, who in the right mind would ever oblige dying people to choose between the dying that is true and the living that is true, as if you can only be one at a time. There's something monstrous about that apartheid, and probably that's among the chief demons that I wrestle day in and day out in this work. Mm -hmm. We are having a fascinating conversation with Stephen Jenkinson, the author of Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. So, Stephen, how can we change our attitudes to truly die wise uh, is is this something that we can do um something can be done but i don't think there's such a thing as changing one's attitude you know attitudes do a good impersonation of the way it is don't they when we have attitudes we don't think that's what they are we think they're an honest rendering of the circumstance around us and a legitimate response to it so i'd rather say that if anything is to be otherwise, then, then the, the work, and that's frankly what it is, it's work, work being the thing that you're kind of least inclined to do, the work is to literally is to change the language that we're using, not to try to change some interior architecture until we feel differently, and then once we've crafted all of that feeling change, then we can somehow behave differently and advocate differently and live differently. So you can hear what I'm saying here is, is that if you change your language, and maybe you've heard me uh, in how careful I am with what is to be said about dying, I'm a practitioner of this thing that I'm advocating. When you change the language that's been forced upon you when it comes to dying, lo and behold, the, that attitude-ridden part of you follows, often kicking and screaming, and protesting, but it more often than not does because your language actually guides what you see, how you see it, and frankly, what your take on it is. If you change the language, if you relearn that, for example, to take one little example, you characterize a person who's died uh, in your family as lost, which is a very common word. Mm -hmm. It's a very com alleged synonym for dead. You know, I lost my father last month. Just think about what this word actually means and realize it has nothing to do with dying. It has everything to do with being absolutely derelict in your duty and your obligation to that one who has died. When people used to say that to me when I worked, was working on the job, I would say to them, but why did you do that? And they'd look at you like you simply didn't understand simple English. Well, in truth, I understand it pretty well, and I know what lost means. Lost is what you did to him, 
It's not what he did by dying, you see? That's one little example, is if you change it, a lot of things change. People listening right now might think, well, that's just words. And I would say to them, friend, everything you think is just words. Every feeling you have is just words. That's how you find out what you're thinking and how you're feeling by what you say. That can be changed by an act of learning. And the rest of you, the feeling parts, who we pay, frankly, way too much attention to, those feeling parts of you, you know, someday they'll catch up to your changed language, usually much sooner than you think. So language is the key to helping us better conceive of and uh, approach dealing with our inevitable death. Well, it, I wouldn't say it's ducky, but, um, but without it, I mean, you're flailing about in the surf, imagining that you're swimming, frankly. Mm. And, uh, and the other thing, the magic of it is that changing your language is there at the tip of your tongue to achieve. You don't have to, you know, get a guru. You don't have to lose a guru either. You don't have to seek out the experts. You don't have to banish them to Tasmania. You, you, you can learn how to speak in such a way that the realities of dying are not only banished, not only not banished, excuse me, but they're served and they appear. And that's what you hear me doing when I'm speaking to you now. You know, I'm not, I don't have that gentle voice that tells you everything's gonna be okay. Everything's not gonna be okay. But frankly, everything's not okay now. The mm -hmm. idea that you should somehow have control over your dying, which frankly is the undertow of the euthanasia movement, that you, you have a right to control that aspect of your life. There's nothing more North American than that, frankly. There's nothing more entitled than that, and there's nothing more unexamined than that bizarre entitlement that says that you get a vote over every aspect of the life that's actually been entrusted to you. That's not, frankly, your possession at all. So you change the language. You don't use the language of rights anymore, but rather use the language of, let's say, privilege or obligation. You, you, you use the language that suggests to you that somehow dying is not something you own, but it's something that you kind of, in a reluctant way, you engage towards the end of your days, hopefully before then, but you and I both know that's a very tough sell. Uh, when people do think about it, they do so casually if there's not a terminal diagnosis to prompt them to some kind of seriousness. And, you know, as George Harrison, his wife uh, said in an interview that at the end of his life, he looked up at her one day and he said, you know, if you're waiting to get to know God uh, until you die, uh, there's such a thing as too late, he said. And I, I would consider that to be faithful reporting from the front line. So... So these are, these are strong ideas. There's no question. I know that. And they're not comforting in the obvious sense that hope, for example, is comforting. Or more time, allegedly, is comforting. But these things are adult strength medicine for a time that doesn't believe that it needs any. And I suppose in a self-appointed way, that's what I'm doing. And probably that's why you and I are speaking. You know, I, it was interesting that you brought up the undertow of right to the right to die movement i was thinking of the question of have the advances in medical care made this physician aid in dying movement uh 
necessary or is it just because we're all control freaks that um, we want to have a say on when and how we die? Well, first of all, I wouldn't say we're all anything. So, <laughs> yeah. So, to be respectful of people who are listening, you know. Yes. But, uh, but I don't think there's any question that as a, as a cultural norm, there's a profound addiction to self-determination, to self-mastery, to self-absorption, frankly, if I could put it that way, and to this idea that real freedom is freedom from being overly ensnared in deep obligation to other people around you. Well, all of this stuff stirs and appears when people are dying in North America, in my experience. And when it happens, uh, the lamentable is almost inevitable. And the lamentable is this. The worst dying, which was most of the dying I saw, was so harshly self-possessed, self-absorbed, that any possibility of a redemptive occurrence of village-mindedness the kind of thing I'm pleading for was the first casualty of the way in which people died. So in, in to be more specific to what you just asked, I would say that what I saw over and over again, and since I've been traveling, I've taught in 10, 11 countries now in the world, and, and it seems fairly prevalent there that people tend to die in the manner in which they lived. It's not that spectacular an observation. But if you are crediting the possibility that death-phobic cultures oblige their citizens to live absent death, okay, in the absence of death, fundamentally, because it's a drag, because it's morbid, because it's not life-affirming, because it's, it doesn't serve your potential, and so on and so on. If that's the place that you grew up, is it any surprise at all that you were come to your dying in a way that's absolutely consistent with how you came to making a living, uh, trying to figure out how to be married or be a parent, uh, and a host of other normal human scale challenges, which is frankly what dying is. And if you've been engaged in the process of self-determination and self-direction and self-absorption, would it be any surprise then that you come to your dying with a, that mandate right in the front of all of your vision and your opinions. And if that's the way it happens, would it be any surprise to any of us then that when dying comes along and generally plays 52 pickup with your idea of what should be, that you reiterate your right to have it be exactly the way you want when it suits you? Please don't get me wrong. I am not trying to destroy the idea of euthanasia. I'm not supporting it either. What I'm doing is raising a question that I never hear in the so-called debate, which is, where is this demand for euthanasia as a right coming from? What's fueling it? And I don't think it's the advent of medical technology, frankly, uh, because I can tell you, as someone who worked inside that business for a long time, that the te technology that was inflicted upon dying people almost universally was done so with their full approval, in fact, in response to their demand or the demand of their families to have it available to them. So it's, it's too easy and it's frankly, it's intellectually dishonest to blame the providers of the technology or the drugs for why we are so maniacally pursuing uh, legislating the right to die or to have ourselves killed by someone else when we choose to. 
I think the debate on either side or on all sides of this thing would be much better served if there was an actually an honest willingness to observe why this demand is is uh, appearing as vehemently as it's appearing uh, in the generation that has been so um, compelled by its own importance, frankly, the baby boomer generation. Here's the thing. Once those um, laws are on the books, that right is not going to apply just to the baby boomer generation. That right is going to be available to your children and to your grandchildren. And it's going to appear to them as part of the fabric of daily life, not what it appears to us now, which is a kind of, in some respects, a desperate, uh, in some respects, um, well, it draws a lot of attention anyway, uh, and it's a sign of how much we're wrestling. Your grandchildren won't wrestle with euthanasia if it's understood to be another day, you know, another walk in the park. They won't be wrestling with it at all. And frankly, that concerns me because I think the idea that you should be able to kill yourself when you feel like it, uh, when it suits you, or when you've had enough, is a rather troubling thing when that right is guaranteed in a culture that still doesn't have a shared understanding of what it means to be alive at all. What thought would you like to have our listeners take away from our call today? <laughs> well, that's certainly not for me to say, you know. I'm just trying to keep up my end here by crafting something that might be worth listening to. What people do with it, you have to, you have to respect the, the alleged adulthood of people uh, by, by entrusting them with a sense of urgency about these things, with the idea that things could be otherwise and frankly must be otherwise, and with the adult strength observation that these things have come as they have come to us. Um, the hard way and the hard way will continue and it will not be easy for things to be otherwise easy frankly that's what we have now so I'm I'm basically I'm pitching to the adults in the crowd and I'm not using that word uh, by talking about how old people are adults mean the willingness to take upon themselves very challenging and, and bracing cultural work because frankly you die culturally you really don't die medically. All the meanings that accrue to dying are culturally endorsed and culturally derived and, and culturally enforced, you see. So if anything's going to change vis-a-vis -vis dying, it's not going to change by attacking people who work in hospitals. And it's not going to change by attacking legislators. It's going to change by all of us taking much more responsibility for learning the realities of dying than we've been used to up until now to the point where we don't oblige specialists to, to be the only ones who learn this and the only ones who know about it and the only ones who practice that way and then threaten them with lawsuits when they don't do what we demand of them. That's frankly a, a, a deeply immature orientation to these dilemmas. And I think as grown-ups it behooves us to learn more, to take more responsibility for that understanding and it doesn't necessarily mean more control it means more capacity to choose wisely and to understand where your opinions and your attitudes and your choices are coming from. Fascinating things to think about and to chew on. Uh, 
We've been talking with Stephen Jenkinson, the author of Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, and you're speaking around the world on on this topic. It and I know you're coming to our neck of the woods in New Mexico, and we're looking forward to that. Um, if people want to find out more, I believe they can visit your website, www.orphanwisdom.com. That's right, just like it sounds, yeah. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time and the effort to for us to have this conversation. And I wish you great success, whatever that means, as you... Uh, reach more hearts and minds about uh, the idea of dying wise. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Gail. Thank you for the uh, the uh, invitation. It's uh, valuable to me, and I don't take it lightly. Uh, we had to engineer like crazy the technicals to get this happening. I'm in Australia right now, and um, you know the fact that you thought there may be something in what I've been trying to do that's worthy of your listeners hearing, uh, you know, honors the people I learned this from. And so on their behalf, I want to thank you for the invitation. Well, thank you. And we'll look forward to meeting up in time and space in person when you're here in New Mexico. Very good. And uh, for more information and links to OrphanWisdom.com, you can visit my website, AGoodGoodbye.com. And until the next time, remember, just like talking about sex won't make you pregnant, talking about funerals and end of life won't make you dead. Start a conversation today. Thank you.